I'm Dan Walters. And I'm Anthony Peters. This is the No Ideas Podcast. Welcome to the show. Uh, this is the second of the two specials that we recorded in November with uh, Fandango Kid. Uh, and this one is about rituals to aid creativity. We talked a bit about dancing. Annie's been boxing recently uh, and exercise and how they can aid creativity and, and help the creative mind. Yeah, which is super important, I think. So we recorded these on the same day, um, these two specials. Uh, so we went off for lunch, didn't we, just in between the two records. And Annie tried to make Ant wear this beautiful green fur coat. It was a faux fur coat, like amazing <laughs> bright green. And I felt like some kind of psychedelic pimp in it. And he looked, you looked incredible. Uh, I kind of did lose my bottle at the last minute and didn't wear it out. But um, on our Instagram, I think you can find a picture of it. Yeah, with me wearing a kimono. Oh. Uh, one of Annie's um, new kind of clothing capsule collection. We looked like an amazing sort of synth pop band. It was, yeah. It's a beautiful moment. <laughs> Uh, we went out to a local cafe uh, and got some of these amazing grilled cheese sandwiches. Annie yeah. said she wasn't all that hungry. Uh, so we got the sandwiches and some coffees and went back to her place. Yeah, and as soon as, as soon as we got back and the smell took over and Annie then decided she wanted half of our sandwiches. Yeah, so <laughs> she taxed half of our sandwiches and uh, once we had all, all eaten sufficiently, we uh, got on with the recording. Yeah. Uh, we reference a few things from... Uh, episode five uh, so it's not essential to go back and listen but if you haven't listened to it before then it might provide some context uh, enjoy the show back in episode five we spoke to artist fandango kid aka annie nicholson about love loss family identity and how art can help to heal after the recording, we discussed the idea of doing a couple of follow-up shows on specific themes. The second of these shows is on rituals and loss. Welcome back, Annie. Thank you. Uh, it's been a long time since we last since we last talked. All <laughs> <laughs> thirty minutes. Um, one thing that you talk about a lot and seem to be inspired by is the idea of rituals. What is it that you find fascinating about rituals, and where do you think the interest comes from? Um, I think. Rituals, rituals have really helped me um, to kind of regain some order in my life um, following the sort of immediate loss of my family and sort of thinking about um, <clears throat> people's, you know, kind of ways of taking small, you know, small kind of activities on a daily basis to kind of try to sift through or tease out some of the kind of the greater chaos and drama that might be going on so um and also kind of like this is sort of this momentary burst of time where you are able to kind of um kind of distance yourself or sort of have this sort of yeah not not like a blank moment but a sort of moment where you're not constantly thinking about the greater kind of level of pain that you might be experiencing so things like this morning dance and stuff, having like a solo dance 
by myself um, has been really nice. And a lot of other, like actually I got, I sort of, you know, working closely with my dad, I sort of saw a lot of things that he does or did on a daily basis and that was really inspiring. Such as what? Things like, you know, the sort of need to create kind of warmth or comfort in a really small way, but like on a regular sort of almost daily basis. So um, to kind of <clears throat> find beauty in the kind of everyday. So, you know, making a kind of little journey to get a specific um, type of like wine or something, like usually, but, or, um, you know, he'd go down to like the, the fish market um, in the village where he lived in Portugal in the local town and he'd like get like you know a plate of oysters is like really you just get them really cheap and a little glass of wine and just talk to anyone who cared kind of thing and that was like a kind of ritual of like maybe probably not even wanting them to be honest but like going or maybe wanting them but like going out to make contact with people when you're feeling like really desperately sad I think is um it's really inspiring because it's kind of like you know I think I've read you know amazing books about um, people that go through hardship and this some of the things that come up through that are this need uh, the means of survival being really linked to like a need for structure um, and kind of um, a bit of order in order to in order to sort of um, push through to the next phase of that you know particular pain or story or whatever it is we all have rituals I think that we we do every day anyway even things as simple as brushing your teeth or when some people go to get a newspaper in the mornings and I guess you're right it's a structure that keeps you it's almost like a track isn't it like a rail track for you going from the beginning of your day to the end of your day there are markers that create a kind of reality and normality and which the rest of your day can be pinned on so I guess <laughs> him going to get fish like that is kind of like you said it is also a time in which he can interact with other people but the act of doing that and doing it every day is one of the things that keeps him on the straight and narrow really emotionally and I think that's exactly it. I think it's a measure really of of kind of how well you're doing emotionally too if you can manage to keep those things in place because you know that they you know are they're kind of cumulative so they will help you in the long you know so things that I do remember like the first maybe few first week or four, four or five days after losing um my family and like the, those first few days and like losing all sense of order was like really really frightening so f um that was the thing that I really remember probably the most so sort of forgetting to like brush your teeth and stuff because you just your brain doesn't have time because all you or is at the forefront of your brain is your trauma and wondering if the people that are in intensive care are going to survive or not and how your life's going to pan out and what's going to you know and just like not wanting to even take time to have a shower in case I miss something and like so all you can all I remember doing is just pacing and pacing and pacing um and not being able to do anything that was um that signified a kind of you know healthy sort of key parts of the everyday I guess you you often hear when people are depressed they stop all the rituals in their home they stop cleaning anything they yeah. stop cleaning themselves because they no longer care about those little details that do make life what it is yeah. so I guess doing those little things shows that you do care about being alive and about looking after yourself and looking after your environment but when you're in, in a moment of emotional pain or fear or worry 
all of those things become irrelevant, I guess. And I, but I do think, you know, like I remember, remember reading this book um, by Primo Levi when I was at uni about his experience of being um, in uh, concentration camps. And he, one of these, one of the things that he says in that book is um, about this absolute, like how essential it is to maintain order um, and structure when you are like facing um, the kind of edge of, you know, life you know when it's sort of this sort of life or death situation and he talks about that and he talks about like that need to kind of sort of you know self-respect and you know in terms of like how you like even you know with when you're absolutely in the most horrific situation Mm. that need to to kind of wash yourself and take care of yourself and have an order in in the everyday just to face the world even if you are facing death in the face it's such an amazing book it's yeah I guess otherwise you're left with just you and that fear yeah and if and the routines and rituals they allow you to have a structure that gets you away from just facing that you know head on all day every day yeah yeah Mm -hmm. um what what do you consider to be your rituals I do like the morning dance I still like a morning dance um or a dance anytime really but I like that sort of energizing thing I really don't sort of like to well friends and stuff or people that I know really well but I just tend to really like to do that by myself um and a hula hoop I like a hula hoop right. into the hoop yeah um but also running things like running running's been a massive lifesaver for me and um I've like naturally got a very fiery kind of temper where I would as like that sort of this you know thing that we were talking about earlier that sort of genetic actually I think and I really wanted to work on that because it's not it's not particularly endearing at all so um running has been a great way for to create distance um from you know the point of wanting to react to the actual reaction the mm. actual outcome and I try to only react to things after running because it just helps to sift through and pr- help you sort of you know structure your response much much better and it's had a big impact as has meditation actually um i never thought i'd be the kind of person that would meditate but that's been really amazing again for creating that kind of distance from the sort of reality and a bit of you know sort of blank not blank space but sort of you're highly awake but you're able to let sort of a lot of sort of circulating thoughts come in and and go out Mm. It's a controlled space, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a time of the day, like running as well for me, where you, you know, you wouldn't necessarily sort of give that time otherwise, you know, sort of just sit there. Because even when you're sitting, if you just sit there, you're still thinking, you know, so it's really good for you, like for creative practice for me as well, but also for emotional, like extreme emotional sort of pain. It's been really very, like a real lifesaver. I do remember though going to like starting the course. I did a course in it, and I was. I remember texting my sister my location because I was like, "Fucking hell! Like, I'm going with a pomegranate and a pineapple to this hotel room in Victoria <laughs> to meet a guy who's a bit creepy called Neil, um, <laughs> and like we're gonna sacrifice it, and then he's gonna we're gonna do I don't know what else we're gonna do, but like and just being like, this is my location if I don't come out, kind of thing." Because just like it was a bit weird. Because um, when you got there, like there was a room full of people that were supposedly meditating that just looked like really high, 
Um, and then there was a room of people that were preparing to meditate and it was like where the fuck am I but actually I was like just go with it because you've got nothing to lose and it has been really really good Mm. yeah I'm not like joined a cult or anything how do you sacrifice pomegranate he chops it up and you don't get it back either it's like (laughs) like you don't yeah because I was like I was going to take nice fruits that I like people took like satsumas and you know but I was like take a pomegranate and Apparently, you sacrifice them <laughs> to the gods. <laughs> so it's like a sort of closure. You give that as an offering, and then it's like, I don't know. It's a, it's a strange thing to do. I like it, but it is strange. I don't quite know. To be honest, I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember seeing him do that with them. But he took took them away. Maybe he's got you a sideline as selling fruit. <laughs> he's got like a fruit market. Fruit or basket, yeah. yeah. It's like. I mean, making meal, smoothies or something. Yeah. Smoothie cafe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> never know. Wielding pomegranates through Victoria. I'm going to do a, a Google search for Neil's smoothie cafe. <laughs> that would be what he'd call it, actually. Keep it basic, keep it simple. So, one thing we've talked about before is your love of dancing. And dancing has many t- kinds of ritual value, do you think? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, for instance, I think we've talked a bit before about in some terms it's like in a grotesque way it can be a mating ritual or a ritual within yourself where you can close yourself off and be who you really feel you are. Or how do you, when you, you're dancing, what do you think that ritual, the ritual means to you? It's just like a freedom, I think, you know. It's definitely not a mating ritual. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's a real freedom because I associate it with the happiest of times, actually. Um, and, like, you know, that like real joy, actually, of, like, being with your mates and people that you love. And just, like, I think also my associations, to, like I was saying to you, to, to dancing are from early observations of my sister Sonia having gone to raves and seeing what that was seeing the way she approached even the event and then the aftermath of it and like the a very the real freedom in it and a lot of community and like the making of the mixtape to go to drive mm. to the party and all that stuff is like a big thing and and like you know it wasn't it wasn't about sort of fashion in the way that it is now or like documenting in the way that it is now like instagram and or whatever it was like it was a you know yeah she would i remember she very clearly she'd say to me you know she'd be like she always had a really good trainer collection she had a really good vinyl <laughs> collection and she'd always say like don't fucking buy singles from woolworths like we buy <laughs> singles from woolworths for like buy the album and like know the album and understand it because you just look like a moron if you buy in singles <laughs> and like so I'd be like, all right so it would like save up for the album and like with the yeah and like be very like meticulous about keeping her trainers clean but apart from that it was like no one was worried about you know I don't remember ever taking any time over anything else, like sort of looks wise. It was mm. just about the dancing, yeah. I yeah. love the cleaning of the trainers. That's a, a that's ritual. Meti- that was, yeah, that's a ridiculous. ritual. In and we do that together because I always wanted what she had. Yeah. I ended up getting the hand me downs. We had the same size. <laughs> so I'd have like, yeah. But Fila, Fila trainers, that was Amazing. a big one. And Deodora, um, Deodora tracksuits. Yeah. Amazing. And then there's always a ritual before you go out where you get together with friends and you have a few drinks and you play some music prior to going out. And 
going out is kind of almost like a religious experience back in the day when you'd go out all night dancing and you'd you'd get together with your friends first especially when you're in your early 20s late teens it just feels like the whole thing becomes a, a ritual and then you want to do it every weekend because it feels so good to be doing that with with your friends as you're sort of growing and developing in the world but dancing is one of the purest freedoms i think that you can have when you're not feeling observed from outside definitely um but with the the mating ritual dancing, there's normally <laughs> always an observer in that part. It's quite grotesque, isn't it? On the yeah, I find it really I find it really fascinating because I'm I've always been if I've ever seen that it's if I if I've been in that environment, it's been from an observational perspective yeah. rather than like you know dancing around my handbag kind of vibe. <laughs> and um, I think it's really interesting because clearly it works for some people. Clearly, that's you know. I can't imagine using my dance moves to like sort of attract someone to be honest I really can't like I don't know even what I'd do <laughs> just like, <laughs> I just, yeah so I think I think it's because it's always been about like like um a collective thing mm-hmm. or that really great moment where you um like you you know, maybe talking or whatever and some tune comes on yeah. and you can't like no, you've absolutely. just got to dance with your friends and all yeah. you remember is you and your friends yeah and, like, yeah, amazing. and you're just like ah oh, you know there's that like moment of recognition where you just got to mm. dance it's so good so good or you, you know it's hard to sit down kind of thing just can't stay sitting down but those amazing tunes are the ones where you literally will not stay where you are you have to be on the dance yeah. floor and you see all of your friends who you love making their way yeah. to the dance floor yeah, as well yeah, yeah. it's like that's my clan that's yeah. my tune this is our ritual yeah um, it's so good yeah. it fills me with so much joy yeah. even talking about it and like the um the sort of i don't know that i think that sort of collective kind of joy and i don't know i just it, yeah it's a it's yeah pure like you say you know i find it much harder to feel comfortable dancing the older i get i used to absolutely love dancing and going out dancing i just feel like a bit more kind of lumpy and in, and <laughs> i don't feel very coordinated now but i still would love to maybe there needs to be a middle-aged man's yeah. club where not <laughs> just not just men but like think, you know yeah because i think there's again this is like this age construct you know yeah. and i think some of the best nights I would go to now, you know, sort of older, because it's, mm. I don't really want to be in a sort of 20 year old environment either, you know, and I think, yeah, I think, you know, and I think there's a lot of people of, you know, if they're sort of late 30s, early 40s that love to dance, because yeah. I think our approach to dancing is very different to the current, you know, one, mm. I feel like, you know, there's a lot of people that I know who are like, who've just, love it you know and refuse to kind of like not be not go out because of you know like, and I think it's really nice it's nice to you know keep that going because there is this is like real collective joy and freedom and like yeah it's, it's just very binding I think it's you know things that like I think and I think still now to this day like when I think of like my sister um who died I I because of our connection over music is so was so strong. If I hear a tune, I like instantly can remember where we were, what we were wearing, what the, like the smell of incense instantly comes to mind. <laughs> like and like the smell of like Marlboro Reds and like um, 
she used to wear this like aqua di geo thing from like 90s <laughs> and like this like this combined smell and like a lot of woolly jumpers and like the trainers cleaning the trainers baggy pants like just i remember like it just makes me associate that with you know so many things that are really glorious and like really safe for me yeah. it's really nice yeah so I think it's a real trigger. Music is... So, I, can I find remember. it fascinating that you can hear a song and it just brings so many... A so scene, many like, emotive a whole, yeah. memories. You can just create a whole scene yeah. in, your, in your mind. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I've got so many random... And I'm just like, why do I remember that? But it was just because of a, an album I bought and I listened to the whole album in its entirety. Yeah. And I can just remember everything that was going on around it. Yeah. I don't even listen to the, whatever it is anymore. But... <laughs> But, but yet you, you know like I mean? it yeah. means so much at the yeah, time. Yeah, it's just a little picture of your yeah. life back then. Yeah, it's amazing what it evokes because the fact that you can hear it and you can, you know, connect to it so strongly in terms of like the actual musicality of it and the lyrics and whatever, so you connect to that, but that your senses are working to understand mm. and remember everything else that's going on, I think is really amazing. It's because it's non-visual as well, isn't it? Right. So it kind of heightens a moment right. rather than distracting you from it. It right. can actually make feel like a soundtrack to a moment rather than having something that you have to look at. I mean, maybe that's the danger with contemporary music is that not the music itself, but the way that it's delivered is often on YouTube. So my kids will watch music on YouTube and so they're not in their own minds enjoying it because it was very much you'd be in your room where you'd be with friends listening and sharing music and you'd have to listen with your ears instead of remembering with your eyes. I think there's that, do you know, that, that sort of moment of like the first time you hear a tune and it like blows your mind, you yeah. know, I like still now I can remember tunes that I still listen to that are yeah. almost like my default, on my default kind of ultimate playlist and I can remember the first time I ever heard them, like, you know, mm. massive attack tunes or something oh. like, you know, I remember yeah. like really, really, really strongly exactly where I was. I think there are certain, you get given a blueprint at the time in which you you become culturally aware. There are certain tunes on the radio that give you a sort of blueprint for the sound that you, you gravitate towards. And then you find your own versions of that. And I think you don't deviate too far from that blueprint as you get older, but you find different variations or different routes in which that that sound goes down but it, yeah I remember I remember buying in Woolworths a lot of records yeah because well. it's the only place to really yeah. get them um did you buy records I did yeah, yeah. always uh singles and 12 inches and, and albums oh, singles so. I still DJ singles did you I still oh, you do still now do. Yeah. You, yeah so yeah so, so, so she, I do yeah. have some albums it's alright to have some singles <laughs> first ones I remember buying was I think close to me by The Cure on 7 inch and the little melody on that I've been obsessed with melody ever since and then I had I might have to re-listen to The Cure this afternoon I had Three Feet High and Rising by Della Soul and I I know every single there's a cartoon on the inner sleeve and I pretty much remember it sort of word for word he yeah. used to listen to it at Ross Edwards house whilst playing on his Amiga <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. he's now zookeeper apparently yeah. <laughs> maybe that uh, maybe that's been his, uh, his uh, I'm not going to even say just cut that out <laughs> the most boring comment I think I've ever made well, we've had some off air pretty amazing boring conversations today <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, r- routines are rituals in essence. Um, and I think you mentioned on the previous show that uh, the routine of having a teaching job helped you focus during the years following your loss? Yeah, it was like synonymous with kind of um, stability for me at that point. Um, it's never quite like, this is a, I never went into it thinking, yeah, this is a great fit, to be honest. And I was like, never felt anything near what I feel about, you know, actually creating, making work, which is sort of, you know, like really joyous. At, well, it's a whole process of many things, but it's ultimately like, could couldn't wouldn't really want to do anything else but teaching was something that it has actually had like a residual um amazing sort of um lasting impact in that you know I think you know talking to young people um you know young very like sort of rapidly growing people on a daily basis is just the best actually Mm. and having that daily input is something that I greatly miss i think they're amazing vibrant fucking incredible and you know there's a big problem in in that i don't think they're listened to enough and i don't think their voice is they have a platform many of them particularly the kids i was working with so really you know it was it was great to know that i've you know created a bit of a platform during that time but yeah i think um it you know there's some stability in having a like a you know real job where someone's going to pay you regardless kind of thing to get up for when mm. you are going through a lot of other, you know, really heavy raw stuff. Because I think making art, making art when you are in the absolute midst of, of, of real trauma is very, very difficult. Because what you're trying to do is just, just survive and put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. You're not able to, it's nothing sort of, you're not able to be really introspective in terms of like, delivering anything that has in my view anyway that has a sort of cohesion or an accessibility for the outside world that said like you know so many artists have written work in the immediate aftermath of loss you know like um i think joan didion wrote that book you know the year of magical thinking immediately after the loss of i think her husband and maybe her son or something, yeah. And she I mean, it was she churned it out in a couple, I think in a, like a very short period of time. And it's, you know, been very broadly received in terms of, you know, people's criticism of it. Um, and some people could really gravitate to that rawness and other people are like, you need a bit of distance, you know, in order to sort of curate your work so mm. that it is accessible to people who haven't maybe directly experienced that, it, you know, but I certainly couldn't do... I'm not comparing myself to Joan Didion, by the way, but I certainly couldn't do anything like creative in that time. She, she'd time. kind of um, spent a whole life being in the moment, being really brazen and brave and honest about the things she was immediately experiencing or feeling there, mm. hadn't she? Yeah. Um, and I guess sometimes you're kind of too shell-shocked to even think about making something out of trauma or, or loss. And I can't imagine most people would be able to actually even make sense of what they'd want to make let alone make something in in the event of of trauma well i think that's it making sense of what you'd want to make you know other than an immediate raw reaction which is you know making sense of it in it in in, you know in many ways as well because you do you know like you're saying before we were saying before like the only way out is kind of through so you do have to go through it but i think as an artist you also have like a kind of a responsibility to try to um 
make your work accessible, you know, or use what you know, you know, use what you know to sort of like, you know, sort of moral responsibility, use what you know to be helpful, I think, personally, um, not just necessarily raw or like a regurgitation of the soul without a bit of thought. I don't, it could be self-indulgent know. as well, couldn't right, it? You know, Instead of sharing a pain and hoping that it will help other people. And, and also people are obviously so receptive to your work because it speaks to them and their experiences as well. But something self-indulgent maybe wouldn't have spoken to people in the same way. Well, I think you have to make that um, you have to still make that whether you show that to the public or not is one thing but I think you have to make it in order to go through those mm. stages to get to striking the right chord actually so I was I did make a lot of stuff privately for a really long time before I felt you know because it was really really raw you know like a very you know probably really embarrassing to sort of read and look through and so like extremely vulnerable um, process, but I think you have to go through that to get to striking maybe the right chord. I know, like um, when I wa- I think I might we might have been talking about this before, but I watched um, I've watched it a couple of times now. It's, uh, the Nick Cave documentary mm-hmm. about his um, the loss of his son, and he and he was making that. I don't know if you've seen it. Seen it. I haven't yeah. seen that. You one, mentioned though. it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's the Push the Sky Away album, isn't it? It's the, yeah. the documentary that came with that. One More Time with That's Feeling. Right, yeah. yeah. And he talks about that. So I think he, you know, as a, you know, obviously really acclaimed, amazing artist, like he um, has a very, you know, very high standards and, you know, sort of real degree of perfectionism in his work. And I think it was the only time in his life where he hasn't been able to have that degree of control because of the other, you know, very clear trauma, like, sort of flowing through his veins that he can't separate from. But, yeah, he had this kind of time frame in order to get the album out. And he, you know, the way he exposes himself is quite uncharacteristic, I think. Even though the work that he, you know, he's made for years is so, you know, exposed and it is so accessible and raw and beautiful in so many ways and like oh my god you know you feel like he sort of can see into souls even though he's he does that he obviously still does it with a degree of responsibility and you know contemplation and curation or whatever whereas it feels like I, this this album and that film struck me so much knowing the rest of his work but so much because there's so much raw beauty in it. It's so incredible. So you know? a, lot, a lot of his songs are third-party storytelling a lot of the time, and the recent album is straight from his own yes. emotional perspective. Yes, which yeah. Which is much harder for him to do. And he yeah. Doesn't, he, he tended Massive. to, in the past, almost be writing from that third-party perspective, so it's definitely... Well, it's, an, it's a beautiful album. It's beautiful, because I think he has that real kind of preach... You know, he's quite like a preacher. Mm. He's got that very heavy presence of... You know, he's a, obviously a great performer as well, but has that real incredible presence of, you know... But to actually do that from your own soul and mm. gut is just massive. I think it's so mm. it's admirable and incredible, particularly in that raw period. It's like, wow. And have people be able to access it is, like, huge, I think. Yeah. Um, so you touched on your love of running earlier. 
Um, do you think uh, that the discipline of training is helpful to focus on your well-being? Yeah, I do. I, I do. I think it's really. Um, I think it's really intrinsically linked to mental health for me and to cre- creating as well. Because I think you know when you're making work that is um, such a mirror of your life, which it is for me. I think you need. I'm increasingly needing structure around that and, and a capacity to separate um, my life from my work. And it's, you know, very, very difficult because one always feeds into, you know, the other. Um, it's also why I'm, like, quite interested in, like, a new period of, like, lots of dating because I'm like, right, I'm going to get some new material that's not just going to be, like, you know, let's talk about dead bodies kind of thing. So mm. hopefully not anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the creepy Tinder dates. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I yeah, I think it's really good to create structure. And a friend of mine has just written this. Um, he's done his PhD on um, on movement and mental health, and he's got a really amazing sort of very unique perspective on that. Done a lot of case studies. Um, looking at running groups for example who you know sort of collectively they you know get together like the random crew group get together and you know um, and everyone sort of is bringing their sort of personal story um, and it's a real sort of feeling of like collective kind of a collective ritual yeah Mm. I think more than necessary not just movement not just that physicality I follow Run Dem and Swim Dem crew as oh, well. Oh, do you? On yeah. Instagram, amazing guys. Yeah. And the guy that runs the the Swim Dem crew, I think he was down at um, the Lido near us recently. But yeah, they meet together ritualistically and they support each other as a community as well as getting incredibly fit. I hear that. Yeah, I hear they made a film about mental health and swimming that I haven't seen, but I have seen the film um, or documentary Mind Over Marathon that I found very very moving it's you know a lot of different people from different walks of life struggling with mental health issues that um take on the, the sort of task of training for a marathon mm. and that was, was so moving to me like i i did a marathon not that long after my family died and um the training process for it is, is so kind of mind um dependent it was for me anyway and what it coming through that and and doing it I've never really done any running before. I'm not really athletic, not really interested in physicality for physicality's sake. Um, I definitely sort of need a, a thread or some to sort of intellectualise it or have a reason for mm. it, you know, um, that is mind-driven. And um, it was so amazing, the processes that I went through in that, the, the build-up to it, um, that it was it's beyond, beyond life-changing. You can see why it becomes, you know, and then it can become extremely addictive. So you have to, you know, it's again, it's almost like when rituals turn into sort of a toxic kind of addiction, yeah. you have to, it's that balance always. Because I think there are people who, you know, will take that too far and it almost becomes, it's like a sort of, it's like a hit of, you know, because it's like, it's a serotonin bur- yeah. burst. And you go from you doing something to sort of free yourself up to being owned by it with yeah. addiction as well. Which is, you, you know, yeah. the antithesis of why you started it, you know. So it's very interesting. So you've recently undertaken an exercise regime as part of a study into exercise and creativity, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about that? 
Yeah, so I've been doing like these sort of high interval training classes every morning at like 6am for about 10 days, New, yeah, 10 days, um, with a view to kind of talking with my friend who's done this PhD about my sort of creative outputs, uh, my creative output, um, you know, and the impact that it's had on mental health and, you know, and creating and working more strategically, cause it's what I'm sort of aiming to do moving forward. Um, it's been really interesting. I mean, the first day, first couple of days, the first day particularly was like a boxing interval training class and shortly after someone rang me and I had to hold my phone with two hands because I was like, <laughs> it was like my arm, like my hands were shaking. I like had to sort of like clamp my phone to my head and just, you know, it's like unusual activity in the, in the sort of hands and fingers and stuff. And it's really like, and coming back and like, someone put me on hold on the phone and I fell asleep (laughs) 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 you know things like that but it's like it's amazing how rapidly you get like fit because I was like I was just doing it this morning I was like doing all the star jumps and everything whereas before like I was just sat on the ground like defiantly last week I was like I'm not doing it (laughs) but um oh yeah I was like keeping up with like even like the sort of massive babes of the gym I was like I can do this do you feel like this exercise regime is kind of aiding your creativity? Or do you feel differently since you've been starting doing it with your... Um, I do. I feel like I... I mean, actually, a friend of mine said to me that she gets like excessively kind of kind to people post-exercise and like you have to watch out for that because it's almost like... So I did notice like the guy in the corner shop who I've known for years... I went and got bref- bought breakfast stuff the other morning and he was like, you seem like unusually happy. <laughs> I was a bit like, hey, how are you? How was your weekend? Kind of thing. It's a bit like, yeah, like it's made me better at small talk and it's, which is because I'm really bad at it and it's made me better at, you know, just not, like you were saying, you know, about like not sort of the anxiety of worrying what people might think about you. Um, but you know, in terms of work, I feel like you know it does it ab- enables you to sort of prioritize, you know, urgent sort of things. And I have a real trouble with like just shutting off from the day, um, and you know, doing things creatively that aren't sort of that are just just purely for like relaxation. Um, and that's I've been drawing a lot more at night, not for like an immediate deadline mm-hmm. or something, which has been really nice kind of yeah. for yourself or, yeah, yeah and I think and I think as a sort of you know someone who's making you're making all day long you know that you have to like you know have other outlets or sort of not there's quite a lot of guilt that I have like associated with doing something like reading a book but that's actually fueling your process Absolutely. you know taking the time just sort of stepping away I think that's you know that's how you find new material exactly as well, by just reading, just people watching, yeah. watching some TV, going to galleries, really arbitrary Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely, but you know, it's all feeding in, you know, in conversations and, you know, particularly for the sort of narrative driven stuff that I do, you know, actually socialising and having these conversations and building your friendships is like, feeds so much into the work, you know, because it's really like about sort of human interest, just, you know, as well. But there's one ritual that I, I read, I've got, my friend bought me, um, illustrated just kids um from patty smith and i i've loved that book anyway but i've lent it to a friend who never gave it back and i was like 
damn you. So I, I got this for my birthday, but it's got all the original like Polaroids and all these beautiful shots of the two of them. And, it, and you can just pick that up and I could read that pretty much every day, forever, parts of it. <laughs> Because they're pro, they're, because that's all about their ritual and their process as you know, a creative partnership, and it's just beautiful. Who is, is it? Patty Smith and uh, Robert, Robert Mapplethorpe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So amazing. I'll show you. It's great. Um, so a Stanford, a Stanford University study showed that walking significantly improves certain types of cognitive efforts involved in creativity, specifically mm-hmm. convergent thinking, which is the ability to come up with solutions to a problem and divergent thinking, which involves conceiving of open-ended original ideas. Do you feel that there's been any change in your cognitive function after exercise? So your ability to come up with ideas or... Yeah, I think there's been maybe... Um, just like, yeah, maybe more sketch, more sort of sketching things out as sort of, you know, that are maybe quite wild ideas but not sort of writing them off you know uh, you know because they'll probably end up becoming something else but definitely bit kind of maybe a bit more fearless okay in the process of just putting it down and being like might not ever become anything but it's okay kind of thing because there's always that voice that says oh that's a shit idea yeah and sometimes it's not it's just (laughs) you're not feeling very confident um yeah exactly and I think, yeah, that's right. I think there's been definitely, like, less anxiety and more kind of, like, yeah, why can't, why not? What have I got to sort of lose kind of thing? A bit more of that approach. I wonder with the the Stanford study, though, whether whether the cognitive, change in cognitive function is because they're actually outdoors, walking amongst everything, or whether it is the exercise itself. Do you know what I mean? I wonder if it's when you're out and you're speaking to people and there's trees and you're taking more in than you would be if you weren't exercising. So I wonder if it's the exercise or the environment. It's probably just, you know, I think it's a combination. Mm. I think, you know, they, you're all these sort of external factors sort of building up and needing to, because I do, you know, it's as hard as it is sometimes if you're not feeling good to kind of have fresh air and sort of human interaction. It, It always, always has some kind of, fairly positive impact absolutely but it's like the you know sort of this real kind of you know it's very very difficult to push yourself out of the house if you really do feel Mm. you know like that I think Uh, the romantic view of an artist is someone who drinks attends openings and parties dines out or someone who's detached and suffers for their art it's not something traditionally connected with exercise and health do you feel that the idea of what an artist in the modern age is changing? Um, yeah, probably. I think, you know, coming hand in hand with, like, you know, being, entering an era or being in an era of, you know, much more sort of self-assurance and emotional awareness and, you know, that emotional awareness being, you know, to sort of take care of your your kind of mental health that is connected to you know, how you fuel your creativity. I mean, I think, I don't, yeah, I think that is a very, I don't actually know any artist in my sphere, like, there's definitely a thread of, like, part, like part, partying hard, you know, definitely, but it's not, like, a Bukowski kind of, like, you know, <laughs> you know, like, on the pavement with, like, a massive bottle of whiskey kind of thing, like, day in, day out, it's not like that. Um, so... You know, I do think people 
you know coming with that sort of idea of self and like understanding of yourself or you know accumulating you know experiences as you go through life like I hate the word baggage fucking hate the word baggage but like accumulating you know stuff makes maybe if you are sort of emotionally aware you do want to sort of think of ways to understand it you know and and those ways are often like healthy ways to understand mm. it are often you know linked to like it's more normal now to exercise than to not right absolutely yeah. you know like it's more sort of like a standard thing that you would which is not heard of in 20th century sort of circles of talking about artists like Francis Bacon who just used to get right. drunk and rage and make art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. now uh, definitely a lot more people talk about and exercise and it's definitely a more, it's more prominent in culture now than it probably ever has been. Yeah. Um, which I guess can only help, but it's not so good for myths. Like no. in 100 years when you talk about the artists of the early 21st century. No. It's like, yeah, they drank skinny lattes. Did lunches. This one time, this artist uh, did some lunches <laughs> and had a leafy salad for lunch. Really pushed it out. A kale smoothie. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it talks about art mirroring life. So, yeah, fuck off. Shut <laughs> um, So we got one last question that's a little bit silly. Um, are there any silly rituals or superstitions that you have? Tons of superstitions, yeah, from my dad, unfortunately. I, I actually purposely trying to get rid of those as well. Like wearing blue and green, it's like sacrilege. So <laughs> blue wearing, and green should never be seen. Yeah. No, that's a... because it's like a navy, navy thing. Oh, okay. It's land and sea, presumably. Oh, right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, also, I mean, I would always like pick up a penny or pick up, like, I often find like little love hearts and I would yeah. always, always make a wish, always salute the magpies. Mm. <laughs> yeah. These are amazing things, though. You can't get rid of all of these. No, but there's something. But I do like. I don't sort of before. If I saw a magpie, I'd be like, "Oh my god, that's it. The day's fucked," kind of thing. Whereas now I'm like, you have to say hi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, this time last year, this podcast was purely an idea. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to talk to us this year and making the show what it is. Uh, we also like to thank Tomino for doing the music and the soundtrack. Uh, and a special thanks to Sarah and Amy for supporting us on this project. We'd like to thank our sponsors and collaborators, Bison Beer and Dot to Dot, and Biff for letting us do our first live episode this year. And a massive thanks to all you guys who listen every episode and send us comments and messages to tell us that you're enjoying it. We couldn't do it without you. We've got some great guests lined up already for season two. First episode will be out in March. And later in the year, we've got some really exciting plans in the pipeline too. So uh, join us soon for more ideas. Bye.